Welcome to Behavior Analysis in Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis in Practice is a podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in Behavior Analysis and Practice, the journal, by interviewing the paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of each paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask the authors after reading the paper. Hello and welcome back to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. I'm your host, Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Salve Regina University. And today I'm going to be speaking with Bryant Silva and Robbie Alfatal about their paper, Exploring Quality in the Applied Behavior Analysis Service Delivery Industry. Bryant is the founder and chief executive officer of Trendline ABA a service provider focused on feeding therapy for children with feeding disorders specializing in autism that is headquartered in San Antonio, Texas. And Robbie is the founder and chief executive officer for Morocco Learning, a clinician-led autism therapy provider headquartered in Boise, Idaho. I had a really interesting and fun conversation with Bryant and Robbie, and I'm really excited to share that conversation and interview with you all. So without further ado, here's my interview with Brian Silva and Ravi Alfatal. Hi, Brian and Robbie. Welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Hi, it's great to be with you. Howdy, howdy. Good to be with you. Excited to have you both on this show. Before we jump into your paper titled Exploring Quality in the Applied Behavior Analysis Service Delivery Industry, we want to learn a little bit about you. So could you both give us a little bit of background on yourself, talk about what you do and why you're interested in the subject? Yeah, happy to. Um, so uh, my name is Brian Silva, and uh, I'm a board-certified behavior analyst, of course, and I've been working in ABA sort of service delivery um, in research, serving kids with autism and other developmental disorders in their families for, I don't know, roughly like 14 years now. And, um, and um, yeah, so I got my uh, PhD in um, special education at UT Austin under the um, tutelage of uh, Dr. Terry Falcomata. And um, uh, after graduating uh, with my PhD, um, I got a job at uh, U- University of Texas at San Antonio as an assistant uh, professor of special education and uh, was the interim director of the Autism Research Center there. and. Um, graduate uh, coordinator of the undergraduate and graduate uh, VCS programs there. Um, So I was at UTSA for um, a few years and uh, decided to um, actually go back to industry. And um, I'm kind of doing a fast forward here and skipping a few things. Um, But Ravi and I uh, had the pleasure of uh, working together for uh, several years uh, which included most recently working together and um, uh, uh, su- supporting his uh, new uh, company in uh, Boise, Idaho, which uh, I'll let him talk about. And uh, most recently, uh, I'm here in San Antonio uh, with my wife and two boys and uh, running a, um, uh, a new company called Trendline ABA uh, here in San Antonio. It's a startup. I've been at this for a few months. 
and uh, we provide in-home ABA feeding therapy uh, for children with autism uh, who also uh, have feeding disorders or children without autism who exhibit uh, feeding disorders. And that's all we do. We singularly focus on in-home uh, feeding therapy uh, using ABA. Um, so I skipped a lot of stuff, but uh, that's me in a nutshell, I guess. Yeah, and uh, I'm Rob Elfital. Uh, you know, I started my career nearly 20 years ago. Um, even before I started, I, uh, I was with my wife. She had invited me uh, on a date. We were dating in high school and she said, hey, Rob, you want to come take this kid with autism to the movies with me? And I was like, well, sure. You know, I thought it would be a good way to impress her. And, uh, and you know, immediately my, my curiosity was piqued and we graduated together and then we went off to school together, uh, both got degrees in uh, child and adolescent studies and were working in education. So we worked in education for roughly 10 years uh, prior to going into private practice. Uh, for the first 10 years of my career, I got extensive training from Autism Partnership in Seal Beach, which was incredibly formative. Like I just learned so much from, uh, from their team over the course of uh, that first phase of my career. And I had always dreamed of, uh, of working in that type of setting. So we left education, uh, started a private practice and really uh, in, different, in different organizations. We've been there for, for three, uh, yeah, different, three different organizations uh, over 10 years. And it's been, a real, it's been a real pleasure, like learning just so much and, and growing. Uh, roughly uh, 2017, went back to school, uh, uh, studied under Dr. Amanda Mahoney at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology conducted my dissertation research in behavioral systems analysis and performance management. Uh, around that same time, Brian and I had been working on this paper and having so many just really incredible conversations. Like we'd, we'd sit in my office and just talk about uh, things like quality. And it was, it was a really, that was also very formative for me. So uh, that's what's, you know, that's what I've been doing over the past 20 years. Currently, I'm the uh, CEO at Morocco Learning here in Boise, Idaho. And uh, when I'm not working, I'm, I'm wrangling my five kids with my wife. And uh, yeah, we, we, have a, we have a relatively chaotic life, but it, it's good and, and we love every uh, aspect of it. Well, I'm excited to have you both on this show. You're both, you both live in two of my favorite cities in the United States that I've visited, San Antonio and Boise. I love them both. So it's uh, great to have some representation from those great cities. <laughs> And uh, super excited to talk about quality and service delivery, which is a major, major passion of mine, hence this podcast and, and some of the other work that I do. And so I'm excited to jump into it. We've, in your paper, you, you outline one of the sort of contextual variables that, that makes this topic so important which is the staggering growth of the field. Could you talk a little bit about that, sort of some of the evidence that the field is growing and, and what that might mean in terms of its effect on quality? Um, so I guess, you know, sort of when we looked at um, the industry growth, at least uh, in you know, doing some research for the paper, we looked at things like um, the growing rate of you know, board certified behavior analysts over time, and uh, registered uh, behavior technicians and so forth. And um, so the data that we drew from in the paper were really from, you know, from the BACB. Um, they had this, uh, they published this uh, U.S. employment demand for behavior analysts burning glass report in uh, 2019. 
Um, and so these, those data are, you know, outdated now because it's been a few years. Um, but they just showed how, you know, there's just been a huge increase in the demand for, um, you know, uh, individual, you know, professionals certified to, you know, provide ABA, you know, services. And, um, you know, we also took a look at, you know, the data from uh, ABAI on, ver you know, from the verified course sequence directory. So basically we just looked at how, you know, verified course sequences are now like all over the world. Uh, in the paper, we reported there were 691 verified course sequences uh, in 47 countries. And so I imagine uh, that's, uh, that's probably grown. Um, we also, you know, cited how uh, in November 19, uh, uh, November 2019, there were over 30 U.S. states in which licensure had been enacted to regulate the ABA profession. Um, so yeah, so those are some of the indicators that we looked at in terms of uh, growth. Uh, what didn't get into the paper that uh, you know might be on more folks' attention today is sort of like the sort of explosion, if you will, of like private equity investment and in the industry and how that's driving a lot of growth um, as well. Yeah, you know, I, I wish, um, I don't remember when I came across this report, but there was a, there was a, a summary or a report of the number of private equity investments that, in, that had been made since a particular year. I think it started in maybe 2015 or something. And you could see this like, you could see a handful of private equity investments, let's say in 2015, and then a growing number in 2016. And then all of a sudden, like you're just seeing uh, huge increases in the number of uh, investments made in the industry, which tells you that the industry is growing. Like all the data are in the paper in terms of uh, uh, board certified behavior analysts and RBTs, uh, the number of states that are now requiring that employers cover uh, ABA services, like all of that has increased. Uh, to the point that then we, we, we ask the question, I'm sure you're going to get to this, Cody, but like, so the field has grown tremendously, but can we say the same for quality? And so I think that's what, uh, you know, that's what, I think that's what we're all here to talk about, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And that is my next question, right? So we look at the tremendous growth of the field. And on one hand, that is incredibly exciting. You know, as a, as a graduate program director and an assistant professor in a university setting training students, I tell my students, you're not going to have any issue whatsoever finding a position, right? I'm getting phone calls and emails constantly. You have any, anyone graduating. And that's very exciting. And it's great that we're able to get into so, so many communities and serve so many people. And that's such a great thing. But there's a catch to that, right? And that's that potentially we're growing faster than some of our quality assurance measures are uh, growing as well, right? Or are they keeping up with our growth? And that can be scary because when I tell my students, yeah, you'll be able to find a job easily. I also tell them it's a little bit more complicated to be able to sift through the all the organizations trying to employ someone to find an organization that is providing that super high quality care that you want to be able to provide as a behavior analyst. And so can you talk about why or how quality might be involved in, in, in this growth and, and, and why it's important to focus on? Yeah. Um, first, I'd like to sort of, uh, uh, I'll, I'll take this one, but I'd like to take it back to how Robbie and I sort of started this project. 
And um, so basically, you know, uh, I think, yeah, at the time I was still a professor at UT San Antonio and I was doing research on, um, you know, behavioral assessment and treatment of feeding disorders and some research on lag schedules, um, uh, its application to sort of uh, FCT and man training. And um, so I didn't know a thing about quality, hadn't even th really thought about what quality services are, not a clue. Nobody in grad school ever told me what quality means or what a quality program looks like. I mean, we're all taught sort of um, what are, um, what's the research, what are clinical best practices, clinical wisdoms passed on from folks who have been doing it for a very long time. Uh, but uh, good luck finding the concept of quality in the Cooper book. It's not there. Um, and, um, and so, you know, I, I was uh, consulting with Ravi and we would meet, I don't know, what, it was just some on some regular basis, weekly yeah. or biweekly or monthly, or something like this, right? Mm -hmm. And um, one thing in a conversation just came up, Ravi just said, Brian, how do you know when an ABA service provider is delivering high quality services? How do you distinguish between a company that is a high quality provider and one that isn't? And I said, this is the coolest question anyone's ever asked me. And I don't have a clue. I have no idea what quality is. And I said, uh, I like the challenge. Let's figure out what quality is. You know, let's do a little bit of research, turn it into a paper, learn from it and see if we can um, sort of spark some more interest in this industry wide and in the literature and discussing empirically, you know, objectively, what is quality and how do you bring the concept of quality of ABA services within the scope of a natural science so we can use our tools, you know, treat it, um, bring it within sort of like a, an analysis of behavior. Um, and so, yeah, so we sort of, from there, we sort of started to have these conversations on a regular basis, um, you know, about what quality might be and how are we gonna tackle that in a research paper um, uh, some of the uh, some of the sort of questions that came up and they made its way their way into the paper were like first of all what is quality um, and we wondered what do we know about so quality as independent from service delivery like the concept what is this you know what is quality and then what do we really know about quality as it pertains to ABA service delivery um, we wondered you know um, since we're sort of taught as behavior analysts to think about the sort of uh, dimensional uh, properties of phenomena and concepts and so forth. We wondered, hey, what are the, the you know, dimensions of quality um, in the ABA uh, autism service delivery industry? Um, what kind of data could we together sort of look for to, to understand quality uh, in the industry? Um, and then we start to wonder, well, okay, so if you define quality service delivery, what constitutes high or low quality? Um, and then what are the broader implications for this? So if you, um, uh, we wondered how better understanding quality could help us answer questions like, um, how do university training programs identify high quality supervision practicum sites? Um, how should insurance companies determine which AB service providers to bring in network, or which contracts to reauthorize, because uh, presumably they want to uh, be uh, play a role in ensuring that the beneficiaries are receiving high quality services. Um, and um, 
you know, how should the average everyday consumer choose an ABA service provider? You know, what kinds of quality indicators that are objective and verifiable could companies disclose and say, here's the data on the quality of our services. You can go look at company X, Y, and Z in comparison, and then also look at our value, values and culture and the services we offer in our clinical model and then, you know, make a more informed decision. Um, and then um, how do people, and this relates to something you were uh, talking about there, Cody, briefly, is um, how does it, um, how do people in the workforce choose an ABA service provider when seeking employment? How do they figure out, wait a minute, am I about to uh, accept an offer from a company that provides high quality services or something else? Um, how do school districts choose ABA service providers to contract for consultation? You know, how do they discern between a higher, low quality service provider? Uh, so those are some of the things that we we thought of. Yeah, I'll I'll add that uh, you know Bryant and I would have these meetings, and there was the the one meeting that I think really was really sparked this project was. He was sitting in my office in Austin and we might've had tacos that day. I don't remember. I think, I think some of our meetings involved tacos. We'd, we'd go, we'd go grab lunch or, or whatever. But I remember him sitting in my office. And when I asked him that question, like, well, but Brian, like, what is quality? Right. Because, and, and I think for me as, you know, as a, as a, as a leader in an organization, we, you know, I, we had just gone through an, an accreditation process we did really well in that process. We, we scored as high as you could, uh, which we were really proud of as a team. But what I started to recognize was that an accreditation occurs at one point in time. You know, you collect all the data, you, 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 you review it, uh, and you, you render your decision. And so we, we received that accreditation. But I thought to myself, what happens in the next 12 months or 24 months or 36 months? We got a three-year accreditation, which means that, you know, we scored incredibly well. But I just kind of thought like, as, a, as opposed to thinking about quality as, you know, as, as this, this thing that occurs at one point in time, I started to think about it like it was continuous. It's a continuous process, right? It's, 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 it's not this linear, uh, it's not this linear thing per se. And so we just started to we just started to ask these questions, and surprisingly, we couldn't find the answers that we thought we would. I, I think both of us approached it like, well, surely we're just not informed. So let's go get informed. Let's go to the literature. Let's open the books, and we did all that. And it was like, well, we're still not necessarily finding the answers that we thought we would find. So that was really surprising to us. And I think at that point we started to recognize that this was definitely something that required more definition and, and a lot more, you know, we wanted to pursue it because it seemed, it seemed worthwhile to pursue and it seemed like good, a good question to answer. Absolutely. And, and, and I like, I'd like to add to that is like, uh, there were some other, there's some like broader issues too in the literature and in the industry that were on uh, Robbie and I's radar, you know, that sort of inspired this a little bit too, which was, you know, we're just looking at, you know, uh, ABA sort of business model diversity and industry growing and private equity, equity investments, um, seeing um, lots of ABA service providers start to be acquired. And we thought about how being able to distinguish between high and low quality program, uh, service providers might be important uh, related to those issues. Uh, we also were looking at like issues related to like international dissemination and 
um, misconceptions about ABA, um, you know, such as, you know, think the kinds of things that are talked about in terms in sort of uh, uh, opinions and narratives about negative experiences with ABA services described on social media platforms um, and, you know, research that has come out from certain journals and certain authors, you know, claiming that ABA um, causes things like PTSD and, and other things. And, and we're just, you know, those things were on our radar because we're thinking, you know, we're sort of thinking, well, this is such, quality seems to be at the center of all of this. If you have a really high quality um, ABA service, whatever that is, um, it seems reasonable to assume that uh, a lot of the um, controversy or issues that could arise with ABA itself and how it's um, how culture itself, how society and culture reacts to what ABA is, uh, is any kind of adverse aspects of that should be minimized by a high quality service provider who, which presumably means that kids are getting a lot better as a result of services. Employees have a great place to work. Families recognize it as benefiting their quality of life. The community, you know, values it. Um, and so forth. That's a, a lot of great points and everything you just said. And I think, you know, from my own personal interest in this topic, I've been, I wrote a paper on sort of risk factors around client mistreatment and abuse. And since writing that, I sort of get a lot of links sent to me that are on the topic. And you know, my students, when they go to graduate, they go, you know, what do we say when, when people tell us that they've heard that ABA is abusive? And my thoughts are, or that, you know, that I, that potentially I was abused in ABA services. It's like, well, that's, it's possible that that happened. And there are certainly many verified instances of people being abused by people who worked in an autism center, or maybe even were a credentialed behavior analyst or RBT the catch is that that's not what's representative of the field, right? And the more quality assurance measures we can have in place, the better we can guarantee that those outliers and those individuals who are mistreating clients or abusing clients aren't able to provide services and that our consumers are protected, our supervisees are protected, everyone is ultimately protected, right? And and that being so important. And the more people we have working in the field, the greater risk we have of, you know, individuals slipping through the cracks in terms of not being a quality provider causing issues. And so it just really emphasizes and highlights the importance of this initiative. And I love that uh, you two sort of having a conversation. We're like, okay, let's, you know, let's talk about quality. And we're like, wait, uh, there's not a lot out there. And I suspect this was, in my ways, I'm sort of picturing you guys going deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole of, okay, well, like, let's, you know, let's just like scan the literature, we'll find something. And okay, well, maybe we don't find anything and just getting sort of more and more caught in this, this quicksand of this topic. And, and I, I greatly appreciate the work you've done, because I've seen this as a big area of need. Uh, and I and I haven't gone through and done the work that you both did in, in putting this all together. And so let's sort of push off into conceptualizing this this idea of quality, right? I think everyone is on board with the the need and the importance of quality. 
Can you talk about your approach to defining it and discussing it? I think you started off by looking at the literature, but then ultimately ended up building something. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so sort of, um, I have to say that um, how we approached um, defining quality itself was influenced uh, by my wife. Uh, so my wife is in, um, you know, she got a master's in um, bioengineering and she got uh, her uh, PhD in um, material science and she does a little bit of nanotechnology and she's worked in the semiconductor industry and now she's in medical device industry and um, you know a common thread that's run through all of her work and her career is a focus on quality and it came from her first job out of grad school she worked at Abbott Vascular and Abbott Vascular has uh, really um, at least from my understanding from talking with her just a really robust um a uh, uh, system of like training and professional development and stuff. And uh, she, she, so she got her first exposure to sort of like the field of quality there. And then that has, you know, just through exposure to my wife and her work and some of our conversations, I realized that outside of the ABA industry, there's a whole world of quality out there. There's a whole field. Quality is a field. Okay, uh, there is the um, uh, American Society for Quality or ASQ, which is a website, a major organization that people can go to and they can learn about international standards for quality. So basically a bunch of other industries like aerospace and manufacturing and, and automotive industry and so forth, they, um, uh, in response to, historically in response to a really high demand for services or products, industries have developed these sort of international standards for quality. And um, so that was one influence on us is, you know, I was, we're just thinking like, okay, so if the rest of the, you know, uh, many other industries are developing these international standards, um, why in the world can't ABA do that? Um, and um, so that was one influence. Um, but then I did what, uh, you know, what, uh, you know, a lot of cool sort of textbooks in our field do is they go back to the origin of a word. So we went all the way back to, I don't know, just searched on Wikipedia or something, just some Google search, you know, like, hey, what's the word quality? Where does it come from? And um, apparently it uh, first appeared in English in the 1300s. Uh, is thought to be uh, Cicero's translation of the Greek word for qu quality, which is poitus, that's the best I can pronounce that, uh, coined by Plato. And, um, you know, we just sort of did a non-systematic search for different sources in the literature that defined quality. And we tried to identify dimensions. Remember, sort of in our, me and Robbie's earliest discussions, we wanted to, we're like, I don't know, how do you think dimensionally about quality? And so we looked at it as having these, um, well, we looked at literature that, you know, pointed out these different properties. So um, uh, uh, Robbie mentioned this one already, which is that quality is a dynamic process. Okay, so quality is not some, we, in the literature, some folks will view it as like something that's dynamic occurring over time. You know, it's not static. There isn't a point in time where you can measure something, a product or service and say, right there at that date when we completed our assessment 
we have now concluded that that is a quality service. That does not apply going forward. <laughs> okay, it's dynamic. The next day, everything can go to you know what, and then it's no longer a quality service anymore. Uh, and so, um, another aspect of quality is um, uh, uh, quoting an article here: the personally defined expectation for a product or service. Um, so that draws in what I sort of think of as like the customer experience, the customer journey, the customer's expectation, any service recipient's expectation of a service is part of defining uh, what quality is. It's like, um, yeah, so uh, another dimension of this is some sense of durability or reliability uh, of the good or service. I'm quoting that one too. So we have quality is dynamic and change over time. Um, it's uh, um, uh, a personally defined expectation for a product or service, and it includes some sense of durability or reliability of the good or service. Um, another aspect of it is it's been defined as an agreed upon standard of performance or outcome. And probably these aspects or ways of characterizing quality were particularly appealing to me and Robbie because of our background and training and behavior analysis and just uh, how that's you know shaped uh, our way of thinking about different concepts or phenomena um, but there's probably other ways to define quality out there I'm sure there are um, but we had to stop somewhere and and try to um, construct a concept of quality that again was uh, something that maybe we could bring within the scope of behavior analysis. So we can, something that can lead us to be able to operationally define um, uh, ABA service delivery quality so that, you know, something that I like to say is, you know, if you can define something, you can measure it, if you can measure it, you can assess it, if you can assess it, you can experimentally evaluate variables that you can manipulate to improve that whatever that is, you know? And so, um, uh, yeah. And so we also look at this with, from like a, a cultural selection um, perspective, um, sort of both of us, Robbie and I inspired by the uh, cultural behavioral science and meta-contingency literature that taught us to look um, at uh, selection, not just at the level of the individual organism, but also at the level of the group and recognize that also there are consequences that seem to be um, uh, shaping organizations, uh, I'll put in air quotes here, behavior, if you will, or the products and services, the output of organizations, even the structure of organizations and the uh, processing system that comprises an organization. There's a there's a, as um, uh, uh, some folks would describe it as like a macro system envi environment out there that's selecting uh, organizational practices that produce certain products and services over time, right? So we wanted to define quality also sort of within that uh, so we could then downstream begin to better understand what are the uh, variables outside of an organization that may be determinants for quality and uh, sort of look at all that in a, an objective way that we can sort of study it empirically. I probably ran, that felt like a ramble there. Uh, so I'm going to be quiet and let Robbie jump in. <laughs> Sorry. 
No, no. You know, Brian, I remember when uh, going all the way back, I, you know, I love that that was an approach that we took because I remember reading on the ASQ website that uh, some of the earliest forms of quality were like when a craftsman would take his ring and he would, he would, he would like stamp a table he'd made. And that ring was his ring. He, he, he was basically indicating, I made this table and I'm proud of it. So quality could really be traced back to like an individual craftsman, let's say. And I think that like starting to think about quality in that way made me realize that right now in our current context, the environment with which all of us operate, quality is not necessarily like everyone can kind of can kind of like you know, say, well, I, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't have a part in that decision or I couldn't, I couldn't influence that. And so quality is something that we sort of like push off, right? Uh, you know, uh, behavior analysts can push it off on the organization, organization put a, push it off on the behavior analyst. There's not really like single points of contact for quality. Uh, and so as we were thinking about just how, like conceptualizing quality, we started thinking about standards, but then we thought, well, standards alone aren't necessarily the most uh, let's say valid way of measuring quality because you can meet standards, but uh, but like who created the standards? And sometimes the standards, by the way, are very compliance driven. So I like I think we started to think about quality in in a different way where it's not like there's a difference between quality and compliance. So like if you go through an accreditation process, as an example, you might pass the accreditation, but let's say 75% of that accreditation process is more related to uh, compliance as opposed to quality. So we started thinking about standards, but then it was like, well, but what about the consumers? You know, Edward Deming says that the consumer or the customer is the most important part of the quality process. So we're like, well, what do the consumers think? And we're, we're certainly experiencing that today. Like what are consumers saying about ABA? It's not always the most positive thing. So we, we just realized that these organizations, as Brian said in air quotes, they behave. Uh, they, they're engaging in cultural practices that are then getting selected. Those are by the selecting environment. That's the cultural consequence. So we just like it all of a sudden it became, you know, I think we were initially thinking like very clinic level quality, and then it became like very big picture quality. And that's where it started to get pretty exciting too, because I think on one hand, there is a need for like clinic level center level quality. How do we improve quality in a grassroots way? in a center, in the home, in the school, wherever. But then also, how do we make sure that we're building adaptive organizations that are selecting for cultural practices that are going to be most likely to get uh, selected by the selecting environment? In this case, our consumers, you know, payers, et cetera. So it's, it, was a, it was a really long dynamic process where we just kept learning and learning and learning. And, and uh, Brian and I have a really great time just like talking to one another. So I want to say we spent, I mean, we spent hours, like I, it would, it would have been fascinating to, to uh, quantify the amount of time we spent just like sort of just spinning our wheels on these ideas. There's so much good to unpack and everything you guys said, and I probably could spend the rest of the podcast simply just breaking some of that down. But there are a couple of things I want to sort of swing back to or highlight. So Robbie, you were talking about sort of the difference between standards and compliance versus quality. Is that where you see your efforts being a little bit different than maybe some of the existing 
like agency or organizational certifications like the CASP and BHCOE and some of that stuff do you see, or, or is that potentially redundant in any way? Well, I think that there, there's certainly a need for standards and standards are really important and we have to have them. I think whether you're adopting uh, standards like that, external standards or developing your own internal standards based on feedback you're collecting or whatever, I think it's likely a hybrid of both. Uh, there's, you know, you have to look through and really assess, like, is this a valid measure of quality? And how much does it really impact quality? So for example, if you have a handbook, an employee handbook, that's an important thing to have, right? But that, that, that to me is more related to compliance and not quality, but you might see something like that in an accreditation process. So I just think that quality is something that is very different from compliance. And I remember first being exposed to this idea when I was a school district administrator, uh, there was a presenter that presented to all the administrators from the superintendent to the principals to you know all of the district office administrators. I think his name was Dr. Escalante from USC. And he was talking about the differences between quality and compliance. And, you know, it's very easy to settle into like a compliance mentality, check all the boxes. If I do it, I'm going to get the accreditation and I'm going to be high quality. But I think what we wanted to do was almost drop anchor and really think like, but what is quality? Like, how does having this handbook, how is that functionally related to me um, producing uh, the outcomes that I want in a center and in a, you know, home program environment. So I think we just started thinking about everything a lot more critically. And we started, we started to try to cast a grand vision for how you can really experimentally evaluate quality. Like if I, you know, if my IV is, uh, is, is a handbook, it's not going to really produce any differences in, in quality, right? Like from an outcomes perspective for my learner, but we wanted to, we wanted to really uh, evaluate more rigorously, like, what are the variables that are actually influencing quality day to day? And then what are the practices that the organization needs to select for to ensure that, you know, you're getting the outcomes that you want or the outcomes that your patients deserve. So it was a, it was a, it was a process for sure. Those are some excellent points, Robbie. And I think what Robbie is really digging into here and getting closer to, which we'll, I'm sure we'll get more into the paper, is we sh our focus shifted from um, this sort of more accreditation sort of and like, um, what is it like, sort of practitioner. We, we shifted our thinking away from like, okay, graduate school as and its role on producing, you know, high quality practitioners and then like uh, certification, its role on quality assurance, if you will, and then like accreditation, we shifted our thinking away from that and into the organization and its processing system and the contingencies that are arranged in those environments to produce clinical and operational practices that would, that sh theoretically should yield good clinical outcomes, right? And then getting this was, so Robbie's points also bring us closer to that question of the, our lack of, our general lack of understanding of the um, sort of, if you will, causal or functional relations between specific clinical practices in an organization on an aggregate scale and the outcomes being produced by those uh, practices. And then what are the controlling variables, right? So that's almost sort of like this, I don't know, it's probably not the right shape to draw, but triangle, okay, so you have, or, you know, it's just three things to think about, which is like uh, the cultural, the clinical and operational practices or organizational cultural practices, if you will, the outcomes of, that are uh, 
theoretically the result of those practices and the contingencies that control them, which can have a, those contingencies may, are very different kinds of determinants than what you learned in grad school um, in uh, Dr. Morris's class and uh, what the, you had to study in the Cooper book for the you know, certification exam and what an accrediting body says should be in your handbook. These are just very different variables. Mm -hmm. You know, one other, one other comment I'll make is I think so far, like if I were to give, if Brian and I were to stand up and give like a state of the industry address four years ago on quality, we would probably find that really the industry had what would be considered like low impact commitments to quality, meaning we're going to put it on a website. We've got the highest quality ABA in all of San Antonio or in all of Boise, Idaho, or wherever it is, right? But those are really low impact commitments because they're not measurable, they're not actionable, they're not auditable. Like you don't really know, like what does that even mean? Like the highest quality provider. So, and by the way, I am guilty of that. I am guilty of talking about quality in that way. And it was around this time where Brian and I met that we started to realize like, well, that's quite a claim. And what does it even mean? You don't even know what quality is you're not even sure how to measure it and yet you're making claims about it. And so uh, it was like, it was a really fascinating process for us to, to dive deeper and deeper. And by the way, you have no definition of quality. So you're really not sure how to measure quality, which means that you're not getting the feedback that you need. It's like playing a piano and not being able to hear the tune until the next day. You're like, how are you going to get better at playing the piano? You're not, you're not hearing the tune. Mm -hmm. Like you, there has to be, these feedback loops where you're like to, to the entire paper talks about this, like being able to experimentally evaluate quality and, and, and go through the, the, that process so that you're taking an empirical approach to improving quality, as opposed to just like, yeah, we're compliant on a lot of things, which by the way is important. You have to be compliant. Otherwise you're going to, you know, you're going to lose your licensure or whatever else it is. Uh, I know in Idaho, there's a lot of requirements. Brian knows this too, a ton of requirements to being a provider in Idaho. So you got to be compliant. But there's so much more beyond compliance. Like there's a, there's a whole world out there uh, that we need to get to. The, Robbie's comments also draw, draw this distinction between the quality, you know, statements about high quality as um, marketing or advertising. I don't think I distinguish between marketing and advertising properly, but I think you get my idea. It's like the distinction between talking about high quality as something you do to um, attract clients and employees and then talking about the talk about quality as a description of what you do <laughs> those are different in uh, your outcomes those are totally different things i would argue <laughs> so. that, that makes a lot of sense and in your answer and some of the other things we've talked about so far you, you keep sort of foreshadowing some of the stuff on the okay. meta contingencies that play in an organization which i'm really excited to get into but we still, we've been talking all about quality and defining it. We still haven't given your definition of, of quality. So we should probably cover that before we get into some of the ways that it may affect practice. So would you mind sharing with us your definition of quality? Yeah, we defined uh, quality at the organizational level. Um, there's probably a bunch of different ways to define it, but this is what we thought would be you know, a reasonable starting point. Uh, we've, we've given um, um, some talks on the paper and we've um, consistently emphasized that this definition, you know, is just a starting point. 
the paper itself, and we haven't said that this yet in this interview, but the paper itself raises a ton of questions and provides very little, few answers, right? Um, and Robbie and I are no way, you know, stepping up and saying we are. The, correct me if I'm wrong, Robbie, but we are not publishing no, this paper not. saying this is it. This is the uh, definition. You know, this is the be it, end all. This is the only way to define quality and we're the experts. And this not. Nah, this is just like what we concluded, right, from our research. And we thought it was a reasonable starting point to spark a lot more conversation and a conceptual work and empirical work on what quality might be in the context of EV service delivery. And so at the organizational level, we defined, um, well, we use an acronym called ASDQ or ABA Service Delivery Quality. Um, so probably in the rest of this interview, we, we might use the term or the acronym ASDQ a lot more. Uh, so ASDQ is defined as the extent to which an organization's ABA products, services, and outcomes meet standards determined by professionals and consumers over time in response to changes in a receiving system while maximizing the financial health of the organization. Um, so I will stop right there because there's a lot to unpack. <laughs> yeah, I, and I wanna, I wanna highlight a couple elements of that definition that I'm just like really excited about. Like when you think about changes in a receiving system over time, that's where the money is. Like that's, that's what ex really excites me because again, Quality is not a point in time. It's not something you are. It's something you do. It requires regular work uh, day in and day out. I think your, your definition is really helpful and illuminating. And as you were saying, Robbie, there's a lot of pieces to unpack with it. I think that one of the interesting pieces when I was reading it, because I'm just, I don't run a service delivery organization. So I have sort of the luxury of really primarily being completely focused on client outcomes and sort of having my complete blinders on, right? Of just going, yeah, client outcomes, that's the only thing that really matters. In your definition, you talk about the importance of, of client outcomes, right? And, and as that is defined by professionals and consumers, which I love. You also talk about the importance of maximizing the financial health of the organization, which again, to me being, you know, outside of that world, it doesn't necessarily, it's not the thing that jumps to my mind. Why is that piece so important uh, and an, an important ingredient here? Well, I would argue that you, you know, we, we probably could have done a, a better job defining what we meant by financial health because initially we got a little bit of pushback uh, on like, well, you know, what do you, what do you mean by financial health? And really we, we mean financial health. It doesn't mean that your, uh, doesn't mean that your margins are uh, unrealistic or unattainable. It just means that you're building a healthy organization, which you absolutely need. So the reason why we thought financial health was a critical aspect of the definition was because it's related to survival. When we think about this, when we think about quality, in the context or in, yeah, in the context of the, the meta contingency, you, you're really, you're thinking about an organization's survival, right? And without financial health, you're not able to survive. So I think that when I think of financial health, I think of uh, uh, very modest margins, almost almost like what you'd see at like some of the amazing kind of uh, not-for-profit organizations in our field who are doing phenomenal work, right? They're not, they're not trying to, they're not trying to achieve these, 
uh, unrealistic, unattainable margins. They're just like modest, healthy margins. They're reinvesting a lot of the resources back into the business, into many of the quality improvement systems. Uh, just because you have a quality improvement system, by the way, doesn't mean that you're you're good. You know, you're good, and you you're, you're there's never anything to do. It's like you have to quality improve the quality improvement system on a regular basis. And so, um, I think that's why financial, from my perspective, I think that's why financial health was important, and it gets the dialogue started regarding um, really the importance of ensuring that we're able to provide services and do so in a financially healthy way, especially at a time like this where the financial pressures are greater than ever. Uh, so organizations are under immense stress and pressure. And I just think it would be unwise of us to have neglected that aspect of the organization's quality. Financial health should not be mistaken for profit. It's just not what it is. <laughs> Like Robbie's saying, it's all about the organ. It's all about the that uh, the necessary. It's just necessary for the organization to be adaptive, right? So um, it's like we haven't talked. We haven't defined the meta contingency yet. Um, so that it might be helpful just to define that quickly uh, for listeners who aren't familiar with that. So meta contingency um, is an analog of the um, <clears throat> operant contingency that was conceptualized by Sigrid Glenn in the 1980s. And basically, um, it's, um, um, it's there's different, uh, uh, ways to think of, uh, different, um, let's see here, like there's a two-term, uh, meta-contingency that we'll stick with here. And basically it's comprised of something called a culturant, and uh, a, a cultural consequence. And so think of the culturant. Uh, so the culturant is comprised of interlocking behavioral contingencies and aggregate products. We'll call the interlocking behavioral contingencies IBCs and the uh, aggregate product, we'll just say AP, okay? And so um, basically interlocking behavioral contingencies is a group of people whose Op individual operant behaviors serves as controlling antecedents and consequences for each other's behavior. And um, an aggregate product is some uh, product of the interactions between the, um, those members of the group that comprise the IBCs. So a simple analogy of this is like, you know, like a basketball team. It's like, um, you know, the interlocking behavioral contingencies are the you know different play, players on the team on the court like passing the ball and so forth like I'm not a sports guy so I'm gonna I'll try not to embarrass myself but it's like look a basketball team on the court okay they're playing a game against another team and uh you know and they're scoring points throughout the game right and so you you cannot have a basketball player walk on the court and play against another team one person cannot play the game or win the game. You have to have a team, right? And so uh, the same, the aggregate product is really uh, in the basketball game is the points they're scoring, okay? So the interlocking behavioral contingencies is the players working together to shoot baskets and score points and the points add up. And those, if you have a certain, if you have aggregate product or a number of points that are higher than the other team's points, then you win. Okay, and so the win is the cultural consequence or the selector. And so the, the idea here is if a basketball uh, team's uh, performance is controlled 
by a meta contingency, if that's true, then the win itself should be a selector that would increase the future probability that the, I, the, I, the variability in the IBC they exhibited during that game, they're going to try to repeat those IBCs in the future game. If they lost the game, that might induce variability in IBCs. And so some, um, some of the things that the team did on the court in that lost game are going to decrease in probability in the future. So now just apply that to an organization. Organization's a big old processing system with people working together uh, to produce aggregate products, which you could conceptualize as, um, let's say, in a you know in an organization that serves uh, clients through commercial insurance, and the services are reimbursed by commercial insurance. There's no in an organization. Uh, there's no one person who can produce a treatment plan that is then authorized by an insurance company. Like ultimately, maybe the BCBA finalizes the treatment plan, right? And then somebody submits it. But uh, there's a lot of people involved in that whole process. They work together, the treatment plan submitted, it's either authorized or not. The authorization leads to uh, ultimately uh, sessions that you can bill and then submit for reimbursement, and the company's paid. And so the money coming in is, if you will, the cultural consequence that's selecting certain variations in IBCs in the organization, those cultural practices that increase or decrease in probability in the future. And so when we think about financial health, one of the things we're talking about is the, I think the way to, one way to look at this is, this is very complicated, a lot of ways to look at it, but, uh, you know, we could talk all day about this, is that um, um, ideally, or now, theoretically, money coming into the organization, this uh, uh, fee for service is selecting cultural practices that produce good outcomes. Um, but that obviously, if money stops coming in, well, then those cultural practices will end. So you have to have a financially healthy organization. And one of the things we'll, I'm probably jumping ahead here and we'll talk, get into this at some point, probably, maybe uh, more, is that um, this raises the issue, the question. Uh, of like a fee-for-service model uh, in the kinds of uh, what is being selected by cultural consequences. And this is selective for cultural practices that produce quality services, or is it selective for something else? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that, that, that's, that's, that was one of the like most significant questions that we kept asking was that no matter what, in, in, especially back four or five years ago or whenever we started these conversations, no matter what, I'm likely going to be paid for my services so long as I build the right way. So really, if the cultural consequence is selecting for good billing practices, you know, you submit mm. a session note, you do, you do your billing properly, then mm. Really, that leaves a, a lot, a lot of unanswered questions regarding quality. And that was where we started to realize the way that you can really improve quality. And this is how the, this is how the medical disease really came into, into play, was the way that you could really improve quality is by analyzing the cultural consequences. Like what, and, and by the way, the cultural consequences are also, they're already at, at, at play, even if it's not payer saying, we're not going to reimburse you for these services, because you may not get referrals, you may not want to have staff work in your, in your organization. So the, the consequences are already at work. 
But I think that there's a way to really uh, manipulate the consequences to improve quality at the organizational level. And that was like a really exciting, those were like big ideas for us at the time that we were working on that, um, which leads well into the conversation that I think we find ourselves in today with lots of discussion on value-based care and, and things of that nature. Absolutely. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, but I didn't want to take us too far off this topic. It's just that, uh, you know, Ravi is getting at, yeah, something that's really important to us is this idea that if you can operationally define quality at the organizational level, you can measure, if you measure it and assess it, you can assess it, you can design environments that are selective for high quality practices. And if you can do this in a way there's there may be some potential here to build this out, develop this further, where the cultural consequences in the marketplace are selective. For, for example, perhaps quality metrics that are tied to those kinds of things. Yeah, that the 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 explanation and how meta contingencies affect service delivery in organizations, I think is so important, right? And, and talking about financial health, where the reality is, if you don't have a organization with financial health, you're not going to have an organization for long, right? So you can have the best ABA services in the history of the world that you provide. If you cannot balance the financial health piece, you're not going to have a service still uh, or service organization any longer, right? And so it's a necessary piece. And because it's such an obviously necessary piece, as you guys were saying, it seems like it can have uh, a major impact on the organizational practices because of the very real and always present contingency of if you don't do billing right, you're done, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas if you don't do quality right, doesn't necessarily have as strong of a consequence or as salient of a consequence, right? And so it seems like you're arguing that we need to to put that up there, that we need to, you know, define this and create measures and, and sort of practices around this so that it is up there that yes, financial health is a reality that we're all working through it should also be uh, balanced with this quality and making sure that that is also prioritized and, and, and emphasized. Yeah. I, I, I think one of, oh, I think one of the temptations for organizations is to go, go swing too far in one direction or the other. So you might, you might really, you know, focus on quality or you might really focus on financial I, I, I hate even using the word health, but it could just be, you might really be focused on financial profit and outcomes. And so I think like recently I read, a, uh, I think it was built to last by Jim Collins. And he has, he, keep, he uses the phrase, the power of and. It's gotta be clinical quality and financial health. The power of and is so important. And I think that's the message that we're trying to communicate is that you're not able to provide services with, with, with no, no, no uh, margin, no mission. You're not able to provide services without financial health. So you got to make sure that you're disciplined enough to ensure your organization's survival. But 
you gotta you gotta have uh, you you gotta build the environment so that the cultural practices are very uh, conducive to high quality treatment. That's that's really what we were, I think, trying to argue in in the paper. And and I would I would add to that. There's this this is and we put this I think in the intro of the paper that that's all very much perhaps related to literally the survival of the service industry uh, because. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just going to say this because it's interesting to me, but I don't know if other people think this way. But I have always felt, since I got into behavior analysis and specifically ABA, I have always felt like a member of a subculture, almost like an alien on the planet, y'all, because I just look at the world different. And I feel like it's, uh, you know, yeah. So behavior analysts are like this tiny little subculture that occupies this point. 0.005% of the population on the planet. And we're telling the planet, you need, we're asking the planet to look at life completely different and to explain behavior in a com- way that is counterintuitive to the way that humans have explained behavior for all of existence. Okay. And so in doing that, we're trying to change culture. I think ABA itself is a variation in culture on the planet and um, it will either grow and be continue to be increasingly adopted by culture in general speaking about all all cultures together or it will it will not it will die (laughs) or it will just remain stagnant and stay small and so um, getting quality right means uh, more success, uh, incre- becoming increasingly successful at integrating behavioral principles into culture to make improvements in the quality of life of not e- not even just people with uh, individuals with autism, uh, but everyone, everyone. Well, and that makes a lot of sense, and I think that speaks to the importance of the balance because uh, you know I was just talking about if if you're not thinking about the financial health of your organization, you're not going to have an organization. If you're only focused on the financial health of your organization, eventually you're not going to have an organization because your reputation is going to precede you or potentially you're going to, you know, ruin the reputation, not only your organization, but the field in general, at least in, you know, your given area of practice. So there's a lot of consequences there. And I've done a, speaking of consequences, I have, I have not done the best job managing time in this episode so far. And so there's all in, you know, part of that is just the sheer amount of high quality content that I think is packed in here, but looking at sort of our, our, our closing uh, sort of few minutes here, you talk about, we've talked about the importance of this meta contingency and how to balance it. you you have like a call to action that's sort of walking people in leadership positions through how to insert this uh, quality into the meta contingency and to have it have some like weight and precedence in there. Could you talk about that? And uh, maybe if you don't mind slipping in there, how quality uh, relates to evidence-based practice to sort of blend two questions and, and throw you a little bit of a mess here. That's okay. I, I I hope there's part two of this because yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff to dig into in the paper. I I don't know if you've ever had a part one or a part two before, Cody. This paper would definitely call for part one and part two. 
Yes. Uh, and it might be a, a first for, for Batcast, but let's see, let's see if we can't somewhat close this conversation for now. Okay. Do you want to take this, Robbie, or, or shall I? Why don't I I'll I'll answer the I'll answer like the call to action and then you can talk about the evidence. I've heard you talk about that before and you do such a great job. So you could talk about the evidence-based practice at the organizational level. So yeah, so Cody, in terms of the call to action, you know, these steps certainly are not, they're, they're not, uh, they're, it's not required that you follow each step in successive order. Every, every organization is at a different point in their, in their uh, growth and development. And so we just, I think what we wanted to do was encourage organizations to think through potential next steps or calls to action for quality. So that might include strategic planning. Uh, it might include uh, ensuring that not only are you measuring those like KPIs as we define them in the paper, but also QD KPIs, which are quality dependent KPIs. So really anchoring uh, quality or tying quality to part of your key performance indicators in your organization. I think that was a, a really uh, positive like next step for how you can start to think about quality in your everyday planning. Uh, or in your in your strategic planning process for your org. So we, we outlined those those different call uh, calls to action. We referenced a dashboard. Like I know we presently use a dashboard, and it's really helpful because on a regular basis we're collecting data, and we're able to then uh, you know use those data points to make informed decisions on what we do next. And so in that process, by the way, is continuously improving. We're 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 improving the dashboard this week on other uh, other variables that we want to measure that are directly uh, related to, to quality uh, at, the, at the center level. And so I think that those calls to action are, are fruitful and helpful for anyone who wants to really uh, take action. Like, I think what we were trying to do, like the, the, here's, the, here's the high level takeaway. We were trying to put quality uh, in the, it really in the, the hands of the practitioners, the leaders in the organization, like stop waiting for other people to tell you whether or not you're a quality provider, just take action, take the bull by the horns and make changes today. Like stop, stop overthinking this, stop overanalyzing it. This doesn't need to be the most, um, uh, rigorous experiment that you run, but like start to manipulate variables and, and run experiments, like build this experimentation culture where you're trying new things and you're measuring the impact that it has on quality. And so I think that was our primary takeaway in uh, that last, you know, that last uh, section of the paper. Yeah, I think that's a great overview. And um, yeah, and so one of the, our thinking has also, you know, uh, evolved a little bit since publishing this paper because we keep learning, you know, we keep learning new things and experiment a little bit. And, um, and, and, and one of the things um, that we've been thinking about more, and um, this is a, uh, I hope a I'm able to get a paper out soon on, on this topic topic is um, the role of key performance indicators. So basically, you know, um, in the paper, I think we got that concept wrong. And uh, so I'll encourage folks to look for a forthcoming paper that really explains KPIs, key performance indicators better and what their role could be in, in empirically um, designing processing system that produces high quality ABA services. So here we mentioned the dashboard 
dashboard, as, as Robbie mentioned, the dash, ideally a dashboard is really just a, it's just a display of metrics. It's key performance indicators of what's going on in your organization operationally and clinically. And we're talking about a processing system and clinical and operational processes. The, those processes produce, you can conceptualize them as in some cases, potentially being controlled by meta-contingencies where um, there's a, for example, a basic process is in an APA autism therapy you know, organization, a new client will be uh, uh, go through intake and a, a BCBA and others on a team will conduct a behavioral assessment. They'll write up the treatment plan. They'll submit the treatment plan for to authorize, you know, request authorization of, uh, you know, services. And so that treatment plan is an aggregate product. And um, you could, there are a whole lot of different um, aspects of that process and the aggregate product that you could decide, uh, that you could quantify and decide in your organization what would be a key performance indicator of the quality of that process and the treatment plan that goes out. And uh, we, we, call, we coined this term quality dependent key performance indicator. I hadn't seen that anywhere else, but we came up with that where we said, you know, a key performance indicator is some metric, you know, of a, of a process. And when that organization believes that that metric represents the relation between the process and the quality of ABA services, go ahead and just label it, you know, QD KPI, quality dependent KPI. And so anyways, you can measure any KPIs in the organization and then display those on the dashboard. And that brings leaders and decision makers in contact with the relevant data to make decisions to improve the quality of um, uh, operational and clinical processes over time. And so in the paper, we, we talked, we thought a little bit about like, wait a minute, so what methods would you use in an organization to empirically improve KPI values to get them higher to what you in your organization could set as a standard, okay? So uh, we haven't, we, in the definition, we didn't dive into those professional and consumer standards yet. Maybe that's in part two, and I'm gonna nudge, nudge you, Cody, to do another one of these, okay, for part two, so we can dive into that stuff. But imagine your organization decide, okay, so our professional standards are X, Y, and Z. Our consumer standards are X, Y, and Z. In each of those standards, we have benchmarks. It's not enough to have a process that can, uh, in, includes uh, specific types of assessments and it's not enough to produce a treatment plan and so forth. And it's not enough to do certain things in there. You have to actually, uh, the process has to be efficient and it has to, the, the, the process of the assessment has to produce a good experience for the family who, and the child involved in the assessment. So there's all these different things you can measure. So as you're measuring those key performance indicators, their QD KPIs, uh, you're, you can theoretically be able to experimentally evaluate in your organization variables that will increase the value of the KPI, the quality indicators of those processes at or above benchmarks, the values of the KPIs that you wanna hit. Um, and so uh, we need methods for that. Right, and so in the paper we drew this analogy between the evidence-based practice at the practitioner level, the evidence-based practice of ABA at the practitioner level, and the evidence-based uh, uh, practice of ABA at the organizational level. And uh, I know you mentioned we're, we're short on time, so I won't dive, dive into that because that could take us quite a bit. But I'll just encourage folks to check out the paper and and see the analogy, you know. 
And um, I'll, I'll throw out the definition real quick, quick here, the evidence-based practice of ABA at the organizational level. Um, if, you're, if you're familiar with ABA practice at the practitioner level, it's the best available evidence, client values and context and clinical expertise. When you wrap all those things together, we can say the process of the service delivery is evidence-based at the level of the individual behavior analyst. Um, at the organizational level, we drew this analogy of organizational decision-making based on the best available evidence, consumer values and context, so it brings in consumer perspectives on services and outcomes, and operational expertise, which is implementation and evaluation of performance and systems level change initiatives. It is how evidence-based are the practices you're using to improve those KPIs. Um, uh, that's the operational expertise piece. Um, so I'll, I'll stop there and maybe folks will go download it and read it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, to those listening, I, uh, again, haven't managed time completely. There's just so much to unpack in this paper, but, but Brian and Robbie do a really nice job laying all this out in the paper. So I strongly encourage you to check it out read more in detail about what they're talking about. There's some tables and figures that are helpful and just overall a really fascinating topic. And, and I thank you both for not only coming on the show, but taking all the time and, and energy that I'm sure it took to come up with this paper and start conceptualizing this. I think it's a really exciting initiative that I hope more and more people start sort of focusing on and, and help helping you all sort of build uh, conceptualization and resources and information around this, because I think, you know, we have so many strengths and so many great things going for the field right now that it, you know, something like this to help us sustain our, our quality and, and establish our conceptualizations of quality over time, I think are so important. So thank you both so much for joining us. Yeah. Thank you, Cody. It was awesome. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, I was excited to, uh, to talk about the paper. So this is great. Thanks for the experience. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Before you leave, please remember to subscribe and like us on whatever podcast player you use to listen to the episode. Also, find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and suggest recent bat papers that we should review. Finally, I'd like to thank a few people for helping create this podcast. Thanks to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of the journal Behavior Analysis and Practice. Thank you to ABAI for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you to my assistant producers, Elizabeth Nervaez and Jesse Perrin. And thank you to Jim Carr and his band, New Latitude, for letting us sample their song Cruising Altitude throughout this podcast. <laughs>